Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. A tragic shooting in Jacksonville, Florida takes the lives of three people. Authorities say the shooter left behind a manifesto. A new tropical storm is strengthening into a hurricane and it's expected to hit Florida by Wednesday. Authorities urge residents to brace for major impact. Former President Trump vowing to fight back after a federal judge today set the trial date for his 2020 election case. What makes that date significant and why Trump is appealing? And in Georgia, Trump's former chief of staff testifies that all the election-related duties were part of his job. But there's one allegation in the indictment that he said was the biggest surprise. And is an impeachment inquiry into President Biden in the works? Speaker Kevin McCarthy hinting towards just that. More on what he had to say over the weekend. Students at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill were sheltering in place earlier today after police responded to an armed and dangerous person on or near campus. The order was lifted later in the afternoon and no one was reported injured. Students were advised to go inside and close all doors and windows from 1 to 4.30 in the afternoon. This follows multiple shootings over the weekend, Oklahoma, Boston and Louisville. But the one getting the most attention was in Florida. Tonight, a community mourns three lives who were shot and killed in Jacksonville, Florida. Authorities are now investigating the shooter's motives. The following footage could be disturbing for some viewers. NTD's Jason Perry has the details. A family member said this about one of the victim's daughter. Now we got to find the words to tell her that her dad's with God. This past Saturday, a tragic shooting in Jacksonville, Florida claimed three lives. Authorities have now identified the shooter. The man's name is Ryan Christopher Palmeter, a white male who killed three black people at a Dollar General store around one in the afternoon. Shortly before the shooting, Paul Meter had evaded security officers at Edwards Waters University, a historically black Christian college. There, he filmed himself on TikTok, putting on a bulletproof vest and a mask. Afterwards, Paul Meter shot and killed 52-year-old Angela Michelle Carr, who was sitting in her car, a 19-year-old store employee, A.J. Laguerre, and a 29-year-old customer, Gerald Gallion. Then, the shooter killed himself. The AR-15 rifle Paul Meter used had swastikas drawn on it. Jacksonville Sheriff T.K. Waters said the shooting was racially motivated, and he referred to writings left by the shooter. Portions of these manifestos detail the shooter's disgusting ideology of hate. Plainly put, this shooting was racially motivated, and he hated black people. I want to be very clear that there is absolutely no evidence that the shooter is part of any large group. The sheriff also confirmed reports saying Paul Meter had a history of mental illness. The shooter's records show that in 2017, he was forcefully sent to a mental hospital for evaluation. Florida law allows authorities to send someone for mental evaluation against their will if they are considered a threat to themselves or others. And when reporters asked Waters how someone with a history of mental illness could buy a gun, the sheriff said because that happened when Paul Meter was 15 years old. He was considered a minor at the time and therefore it may not have appeared on the background checks when he purchased the guns. Spokesman for the National Police Association, Sergeant Betsy Banner-Smith, added this about the investigation so far. really applaud um, law enforcement for getting 
the motive out there so very quickly for releasing that manifesto so that people can understand why this happened. You know, we believe when we can read the writings and see the videos of these horrific criminals that we can learn from them and we can prevent these types of crimes from happening in the future. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced that his office is directing $1.1 million to improve security at Edwards Waters University and to support the victims' families. Jason Perry, NTD News. Tropical storm Idalia is expected to strengthen into a Category 3 hurricane today and make landfall in Florida this week. Governor Ron DeSantis is urging residents to prepare. This is going to be a major impact, and Floridians should expect uh, that this, this storm will be a major Cat 3-plus hurricane. The governor said the hurricane could make landfall on Wednesday in northern Florida's Big Bend area, where the panhandle transitions into the peninsula. Authorities are urging millions of residents to prepare to evacuate ahead of the expected landfall early Wednesday morning. DeSantis declared a state of emergency for most of the northern part of the state and mobilized 5,500 National Guard members. The area could see power outages, heavy rain and winds of more than 110 miles an hour. 20 million Floridians are currently under hurricane and tropical storm watches. President Biden approved an emergency declaration for the state today and said the federal government will offer full support. Former President Trump is now vowing to appeal after a federal judge today set a trial date for the Justice Department's 2020 election case. NTD's Iris Tao has more from outside the D.C. courthouse. So federal judge Tanya Chuggin, who is in charge of Trump's 2020 election case here in Washington, D.C., has set the trial date for March 4, 2024. And that is just one day before Super Tuesday, which is when 15 states will hold their primaries. So it's really in the middle of the Republican primary season. And Trump this afternoon responded on True Social, calling it election interference. He said that, quote, a biased Trump-hating judge gave me only a two-month extension, just what our corrupt government wanted. Super Tuesday, I will appeal. So this morning before the judge announced her decision, Trump's lawyers sparred with federal prosecutors over the issue of a trial date right behind me at this courthouse. Federal prosecutors had asked for a trial date in January 2024, citing the need for a speedy trial. But Trump's lawyers asked for a trial date in April 2026, saying that they would need years to go through the over 10 million pages of documents presented to them by the DOJ, which they said in their court filing that if printed out would amount to a eight times the height of the Washington Monument. And today in court, Trump's lawyers said that, quote, this man's liberty and life is at stake and he deserves an adequate representation, adding that the DOJ's time frame of just five months from now will not allow Trump to have a fair trial. But prosecutors fired back, saying that a lot of the documents had already been available to them beforehand, adding that it's not like they have to go through them page by page anyway. And of course, now the judge has set the trial date for March 2024, which would give Trump's lawyers just two months more than what a DOJ wanted them to have. Tiff. And Mark Meadows earlier today testifying that he was doing his job and the actions he took during former President Trump's challenge to the 2020 election results in Georgia. Meadows and others are asking a federal judge to remove their charges to federal court. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has more.
A Georgia prosecutor presenting a preview of the case against former President Trump and 18 co-defendants at a federal hearing earlier today. The proceeding, scheduled by District Court Judge Steve Jones, to hear arguments on former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows' motion to move the case against him to federal court. Meadows argued in his filing and in testimony that all election-related actions he took were part of his role as the president's chief of staff. Under the law, federal officials are typically tried in federal courts in cases involving official acts conducted while in office. Meadows testified that his role involved setting up meetings and phone calls for the president. Also, meeting with state officials was part of his job. Meadows had arranged the phone call between Trump and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger on January 2, 2021. Trump attempted to get an official recount and said he was looking for more votes that would prove he beat Joe Biden. The call has been identified as the spark that led to Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis's investigation. The prosecution asked Meadows about specific actions alleged in the indictment and whether those actions were part of his official duties. For example, the indictment alleges he traveled to Georgia in December 2020 to observe a signature matching audit. Meadows testified that he did attend and that it was within his responsibilities as chief of staff. However, he denied being involved in an alleged strategy to have then-Vice President Mike Pence delay the electoral proceeding on January 6, 2021, and testified that it was the biggest surprise in the indictment. The judge's decision on this motion will affect at least four other co-defendants who filed similar motions, including Trump's former assistant attorney general, Jeffrey Clark. Clark is also facing an ethics case related to challenging the 2020 election results. Federal Judge Rudolph Contreras on Friday denied his bid to have the case put on hold while he defends against the Georgia case. And a judge overseeing a California disbarment case against Georgia defendant John Eastman has denied his request for a delay in the proceeding due to the Georgia indictment. In the Georgia indictment, Eastman has been painted as the architect of a plan to have Pence pause the certification of electoral votes. In California, he faces multiple ethics violations related to his role in Trump's challenge to the 2020 election results. All 19 defendants will be arraigned in Georgia on September 6. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Former President Trump is increasing his lead in the polls after the primary debate last week. Meanwhile, Vivek Ramaswamy is gaining steam. Here's what the polls say about the Republican primary. Former President Trump now leads Florida Governor Ron DeSantis by a staggering 40 percentage points in the race for the Republican presidential nomination. That's according to a Reuters-Ipsos poll, which closed on Friday after a primary debate Trump didn't attend and yet another indictment. The poll shows Trump now has 52 percent support from Republican voters. That's up from the 47 percent he received in a Reuters-Ipsos poll in early August. DeSantis remains in second place with 13 percent. The Florida governor performed best during the first Republican primary debate last week. That's according to a different poll by Ipsos, conducted together with 538 and The Washington Post. That poll found that 29 percent of voters who watched the debate say DeSantis was the candidate who did best. Closely behind him is tech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy. 26% of voters say he performed best during the debate. However, in terms of general support from Republican voters, Ramaswamy has been doing better than DeSantis lately. Here's an average from 538 taken from 18 different polls. 
As you can see, DeSantis's numbers have been going down steadily since the start of the campaign. Meanwhile, Ramaswamy's numbers have been going up for the past two weeks, to the point where he's now head-to-head -head with DeSantis. The next Republican primary debate is scheduled to take place in a month. Republican primary elections are set to kick off in mid-January. Will the House launch an impeachment inquiry into President Biden? They're set to return to Washington next month. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has hinted at the possibility in the past, only to back up later. Over the weekend, he spoke about it again. And today's Melina Weiskup has more from Capitol Hill. Recent comments coming from House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, as well as the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan, indicate that the House is gearing up towards launching an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. When asked directly over the weekend if he was planning to launch this impeachment inquiry once the House comes back in just two weeks from the recess in September, Speaker McCarthy had this to say. If you look at all the information we've been able to gather so far, it is a natural step forward that you would have to go to an impeachment inquiry. He said this in reference to findings from the Oversight Judiciary and Budget Committees. For example, IRS whistleblowers coming forward and saying that top DOJ officials stood in the way of their investigation into Hunter Biden's tax evasions regarding foreign income. There's also that recent testimony by Devin Archer, who's Hunter Biden's longtime business partner, who testified that Biden, when serving as vice president, did attend some dinners with Hunter Biden, as well as the foreign business associates that he was working with. But House Republicans say there are still many unanswered questions, and the administration is stonewalling their investigations, which is one reason why Speaker McCarthy says that an impeachment inquiry may be needed, saying that if they take this approach, Congress will have the tools to find this information that they're looking for. McCarthy has in the past already indicated that he was interested in an impeachment inquiry, which House Republicans say does carry some weight. I don't think there's any question that him speaking to that uh, has has cost a paradigm shift, yes. The chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan, also commented that the House is very close to launching this impeachment inquiry, but he also stated that this would take the full support of the Republican conference since no Democrats would support this effort. And there's also a roadblock, of course, in the Senate where Democrats hold the majority. The House will return in two weeks, so we'll be waiting to see how they handle this, as well as a fast approaching September 30th deadline to fund the government to avoid a shutdown. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Coming up, a smoking helicopter in Florida crashes into an apartment complex, ending in multiple fatalities. Is the U.S. making concessions to China or holding firm? The Secretary of Commerce is in Beijing, and so far she's maintained Trump-era trade restrictions, despite different messaging under President Biden. A Canadian pastor who took a stance against lockdowns is facing up to a decade in prison. His family members and fellow Christians gathered outside the Canadian embassy, saying it's an injustice. And could the ceiling fan be going the way of gas stoves? The Biden administration is now saying those fans waste too much energy, causing pollution. Stay tuned for more after the break. Welcome back. Frightening video of a smoking helicopter in South Florida this morning, ending in multiple fatalities. And just a warning, some viewers may find the following content disturbing. 
That's a Broward County Sheriff's Fire Rescue Helicopter. It appears to be on fire near the rear of the aircraft before it falls into a tailspin. The chopper went down just north of Fort Lauderdale and crashed into a small apartment complex. The Broward Sheriff's Office said Captain Terrison Jackson died in the crash. He was with the agency for 19 years. Two others on board the helicopter were taken to a local hospital. One person on the ground was killed and two others on the ground were hurt and taken to the hospital. All four of the injured are in fair condition. The departments of the FAA and the NTSB will help investigate the accident. Another top U.S. official is visiting China, the fourth in three months. Today, the Secretary of Commerce is in Beijing. What's behind the timing of her visit and what might come out of it? Earlier, we discussed with Bart Marcois, a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of International Affairs. Bart Marcois, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo is in China. It seems she has quite a fine diplomatic line to walk. On one hand, her trip aims to increase trade cooperation between the two sides, but it comes at a time when there's rising trade restrictions on China. So what's the strategy here? You know, the strategy seems to be devised by the communist Chinese rather than by the American administration. I they, the Americans have been reaching out to China for two and a half years and have been rebuffed. Uh, Communist China is treating the Biden administration like a lackey. And now that, that they are facing their real estate empire imploding and, uh, and an economic depression, they suddenly have an interest in speaking to America. And of course, it's on commerce and trade. The administration should be very tough in their approach to China, and I'm afraid they will not be. And on that note, it seems Biden's administration seems to be focused on diplomatic detente, maybe versus Trump's more hawkish stance on China. But at the same time, President Biden has kept a lot of the trade tariffs on China. So how do you read the differences here? I think that part of that is attributable to um, Secretary Raimondo herself. She is one of the few people in the administration who is actually quite competent and capable. Before she was governor of Rhode Island, she was treasurer of Rhode Island. Before that, and more importantly, she set up and managed the first, uh, was it a hedge fund or private equity fund in Rhode Island, the only one operating at the time. She really knows what she's doing. She understands the international financial markets. And I think that she has held the line on this. I hope she continues to. And on that note, Gina Raimondo is the latest in a slew of visits. There was Blinken, Yellen, and Kerry. How important is this trip? I think it's very important to, to communist China. It's not as important to us because we hold the upper hand here. And if she can just hold firm, then we could make progress. If, on the other hand, our focus is on, as you put it so well, diplomatic detente, then we're playing the Chinese game rather than the American game. You said President Trump was hawkish. He was, and he never let it be doubted that he believed in putting American interests first. When you look at Joe Biden and his family and their their commercial dealings with 
China over the last 20 or 30 years, I don't think we can be sure that they are putting American interests first. And on this trip, Gina Raimondo has pointed out the $700 billion in trade between the two countries. She said she's, quote, very open to discussions with Beijing. Where do you see U.S.-China relations going from here? I think that China will make a lot of overtures and, and act like they are making concessions. But what they really want is to be able to continue investing in strategic real estate and strategic uh, technology in the United States without the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., CFIUS, uh, interfering. And I think they want increased American investment in China. And I believe that we will, I hope that we will see a reticence on the part of the secretary to make any concessions. Now is not the time to make concessions. Now is the time to ask China to make concessions. They need our help, and we need to make sure that we get something important in return. Bart Marquois, thank you so much for your time. It was my pleasure, Tiffany. Thank you for having me on. A Canadian pastor is facing 10 years in prison for railing against the nation's COVID-19 lockdown policies. Today, his family, along with other Christians, gathered outside the Canadian embassy in D.C., saying Canada needs to restore religious freedom. Handy's Sam Wong brings us more. It's a rainy day here in D.C., but outside the Canadian embassy, this group of Christians isn't letting a little drizzle to stop them from speaking out. Canadian pastor Arthur Polowski is now facing up to a decade behind bars after delivering a sermon to a crowd of truckers earlier this year. Uh, my mom and dad came here from communism and they were promised at the Canadian Embassy freedom. And here we are today where we are being very much persecuted for our beliefs. In February last year, Polowski delivered a speech to truckers who were protesting federal vaccine mandates by blocking the U.S.-Canada border. He urged them to go about their plan peacefully and not to, quote, break the line. Just days after the event, he was arrested. The court found him guilty of mischief and other charges. I believe the charges of mischief and especially eco-terrorism are really unjust. There's no mischief there. This man is, he's fed the homeless. He stood by the truckers. He fed them. He preached the gospel of Christ. And he stood against some things that are very ungodly in Canada. That's what he did wrong in their sight. For what they call mischief, which is either um, they don't like what they say, they don't like what they say, but they also don't want anybody else to hear it. And finally, they don't like what they say. They don't want anybody else to hear it. And they want to teach them a lesson so nobody else will say anything. Pastor Pulowski is no stranger to the Canadian law enforcement. He was arrested five times after continuing his church service during the nationwide COVID-19 lockdown. His name first became well-known back in 2021, following a confrontation with police and other health officials. They visited his church to make sure it was obeying pandemic guidelines, which included limiting the number of people and social distancing. Palowski said that they entered his church without a warrant, and therefore, he kicked them out. What's happening to Pastor Palowski, if we don't stand and fight this, it's going to happen right here in America. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Sam Wong, NTD News. A popular item for cooling things down finds itself in the hot seat. NTD's Nano Monahan has the story on the Biden administration's proposed new rules for ceiling fans. The Department of Energy has come up with some new rules that would impose energy efficiency standards on ceiling fans. 
The move follows similar restrictions unveiled against other household appliances like gas stoves and generators. The agency estimates that consumers could save around 4 bucks per year with its new guidelines. While manufacturers may have to shell out about $87 million annually in increased equipment costs, the DOE's ban on gas stoves also projects meager savings for consumers, a figure recently updated to an even lower amount. The Association of Home Appliance Manufacturers says the original proposal to save consumers 13 cents per month in utility costs has been revised to just 9 cents per month. At that figure, the projected savings will come to just about a buck a year. Republicans from the House Committee on Small Business are criticizing the proposal, highlighting the harms it would have on small businesses in the ceiling fan industry. They say the rule would force many small business fan manufacturers to redesign their products and could put between 10 and 30 percent of them out of business altogether. The DOE says the proposed standards wouldn't take effect until 2028 and would give people more energy-efficient options to choose from while substantially reducing air pollution. Around 85 million American households use at least one ceiling fan, with a quarter using four or more. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, former President Trump is navigating several court cases just as primary season gets underway. What are the challenges and how might the Trump team respond? We bring you analysis. The biggest case of its kind in U.S. history. Over 300,000 veterans may get a big payout from 3M after claiming its earplugs contributed to their hearing loss. A longtime San Francisco resident gives people a tour of the city's Tenderloin neighborhood. He introduces the area's history and its current situation. And teens broke out into a brawl at a Southern California mall. In nearby cities, similar fights were also caught on video. We'll be back with that in just a moment. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Three black people were shot and killed in Jacksonville, Florida over the weekend in what police say was a racially motivated attack. The shooter also killed himself. Tropical storm Idalia is expected to strengthen into a Category 3 hurricane and make landfall along Florida's Gulf Coast on Wednesday. Residents are evacuating. A judge set a trial date of March 4, 2024 in former President Trump's federal elections case. And in the Georgia case, Trump and his co-defendants are set to be arraigned on September 6th. And here to help us break down Trump's cases is Robert Henneke, executive director and general counsel at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Robert Henneke, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So Trump and his 18 co-defendants will be arraigned in Georgia next Wednesday. The current calendar suggests that Trump will be embroiled in all of these different cases in courtrooms from Miami to New York during election season. And Trump's legal team has been trying to push out these dates. With so many cases going on at once, are judges likely to side with these requests? Well, they haven't so far. And let's keep in mind that the process is the punishment. A lot of this next year is aimed at uh, seeking to deny Trump being re reelected as president and to influence the political outcome. 
But it's also the opportunity for President Trump to get on the offense, as we saw with the way that he uh, leveraged his photograph from his uh, uh, booking from last week uh, into his political advantage. So now these cases have moved forward. It's certainly the chance for President Trump to be fighting back in the court proceedings as he stands for his innocence. And now for the D.C. case, a trial date has been set for March 4th, 2024. That's one day before Super Tuesday, and March is also when Trump is set to be in court in New York in trial for the charges on alleged falsification of business records. And because of this timing, is there grounds for the judge to push out that case specifically? There should be. I mean, the judges, if they're really seeking justice, would not be setting these cases to overlap with the political calendar. Keep in mind that the, the prosecutors in Georgia wanted to have their trial set for March 4th, which is the day before Super Tuesday uh, next year. They didn't get that. So then another case that's going after President Trump, uh, the one in D.C. this time, set their trial date for that. So it's obviously intended to influence the political calendar and the electorate and aligning up with that. Uh, but uh, it's, I think, making it more evident to the American people how these cases are really an abusive process and abuse of power, the more that these prosecutors in Florida and Georgia and DC and New York want to misuse their power to affect the election, it's just gonna be even more transparent and obvious to voters as they are making the decision on who to elect uh, in 2024. And now in terms of the Georgia case, lawyers for Mark Meadows are making their arguments to a federal judge in Atlanta today to move the case from state to federal. How would that impact the case? It would certainly delay uh, indefinitely the Georgia state case from proceeding forward. If uh, the removal of the case to federal court divert, divests the state court of jurisdiction, and so the case would be transferred to federal court uh, and the state courts in Georgia would lose their authority over that uh, while the, the federal court case proceeded. Uh, so we'll, we'll wait to see on that. Certainly one possibility is that the outcome of the removal could be appealed, could be litigated even further. So that could further push off the timing of when the Georgia, lost, Georgia criminal cases would be allowed to proceed forward. And now this Georgia case is on racketeering charges different from all the other indictments. What does each side have to prove in this? It's twofold. Well, first of all, President Trump and his co-defendants don't have to pr prove anything. Uh, they are entitled to the presumption of innocence under our Constitution. They are innocent until proven guilty, and it's the Fulton County prosecutor that has the sole burden to prove all of the charges beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, the racketeering charges basically two elements. One is that there was a, a, a criminal objective in mind that was brought by an organization of individuals. Now, I think the case is flawed for both of those reasons. The criminal objective allegedly was President Trump disagreeing with the outcomes of the 2020 election and then attempting to use legal means to challenge those results. That's not a crime. There's also no criminal organization at issue. A candidate and their lawyers and their consultants and their campaign is not an organized criminal entity. It's just a campaign. And so the theory of these racketeering charges that were brought by the Georgia prosecutor factually and legally are very thin. And what it just shows is another attempt 
to use the power of the criminal justice system to, to attack a political rival. Robert Henneke, thank you so much for your time. Great to be with you. The largest case of its kind may be nearing a settlement. Over 300,000 veterans have accused American conglomerate 3M of producing defective earplugs. They say the earplugs fail to protect them from hearing from loud noises. Entity's Faye Quarter has more. A case that alleges hearing loss from defective 3M earplugs may soon be settled. The Wall Street Journal reports that the 3M board is considering $5.5 billion in payments. It's the biggest case of its kind in U.S. history. Over 300,000 military veterans said 3M's earplugs failed to protect their hearing from loud sounds, like gunfire and helicopters. Loud noises can damage a person's hearing by injuring the cells in the inner ear. If the noise is loud enough, it could cause permanent hearing loss instantly. For most people, the hearing loss is gradual. All the loud sounds you hear are damaging your hearing, gradually, over the course of your lifetime. Some examples of loud sounds to be careful of, loud music, whether it be through headphones or at a concert. Setting the volume too high when watching TV, going to large events with blaring loudspeakers and roaring crowds. Fireworks shows and power tools. The damage from these sounds adds up. To protect your ears, experts suggest lowering the volume, moving away from the noise, and wearing earmuffs and or earplugs. 3M says its earplugs are not defective. The company says the earplugs are effective when properly placed in the ears. And that in certain combat scenarios, even the best hearing protection can't prevent hearing damage. Faye Quarter, NTD News. A tour calling itself the Doom Loop Walking Tour promised to show San Francisco's open-air drug markets and vacant department stores. NTD's Jason Blair reports that the tour was canceled, but a second unaffiliated tour of many of the same areas took place instead. A downtown Doom Loop Walking Tour showing San Francisco's drug and economic issues was sold out for a Saturday tour according to a listing on Eventbrite. However, it was suddenly canceled, and a different tour that was unaffiliated ended up happening instead. According to the San Francisco Chronicle, a notice was sent out canceling the Doom Loop tour less than a day before, saying, quote, Unfortunately, the substantial media interest means that it is not possible to preserve my anonymity while publicly posting the tour's time and meeting location. The tour listing says the anonymous guide is a city commissioner and co-founder of San Francisco's largest neighborhood association. And quote, we will view the open-air drug markets, the abandoned tech offices, the outposts of the nonprofit industrial complex, and the deserted department stores. In recent years, open-air drug use, homelessness, and closing businesses have been in the spotlight for the city. Now the tour was scheduled to start right over here in this area. And when I showed up to investigate, not knowing that it was canceled, I saw a group forming, but it turned out to be for a different tour. The simultaneously scheduled tour was the Tenderloin Walking Tour, and it went through the Tenderloin and Mid-Market neighborhoods, which are hotspots for homelessness and drug use. It was led by Del Seymour, a homeless advocate and nonprofit founder that helps struggling people find employment and helps addicts find recovery. Because even you got people from the community to believe in we're in a zoom, doom, room, whatever it is. 
And so, and that's really depressing to be already being in this situation, then having people tell you how bad you are, how bad you look, how bad you smell. The tour showed the Tenderloin sites and unique history. It didn't ignore the homeless and drug issues, but it also showed the many efforts to help people get back on their feet. We not only pass out meals to people, we help people find housing, we help people find educational resources. Seymour has been doing the free tour three times a week for 17 years and says he does it to show people what the often avoided area is really like. I want people to learn how to deal with learn a better way to deal with their unhoused neighbors in this neighborhood or their own neighborhoods. The tour was just under two hours long and had around 70 in attendance. It ended at Seymour's nonprofit Code Tenderloin, where free lunches were waiting for attendees. Reporting from San Francisco, Jason Blair, NTD News. Staying in California, a brawl at a mall in L.A. triggers a substantial police response. NTD's Stephanie Sakal reports on that and multiple skirmishes involving youth around California. A chaotic scene unfolded at Del Amo Fashion Center. What at first many thought was another flash mob robbery turned out to be a dozen of juveniles fighting each other. A brawl involving a group of teens at the Del Amo Fashion Center triggered a significant police response in Torrance on a Sunday afternoon. Calls reporting the incident on the 3,500 block of West Carson Street started coming in around 4 p.m. as informed by Torrance Police Department Sergeant Salary. Responding officers arrived at the location and confirmed a fight among a group of juveniles. According to Celery, one witness mentioned a firearm being discharged, but no gunshot victims were found. Celery continued to say that nearby businesses didn't require evacuation and eventually, the young individuals involved were escorted away from the premises. While the exact number of people involved in the fight isn't clear, police estimated around a thousand juveniles were present as spectators. Additionally, there was another instance of a conflict involving young individuals in Emeryville on the same Sunday afternoon. According to the Emeryville Police Department, approximately 50 young individuals caused a disturbance inside a store at the Bay Street Mall and had to be escorted out. About an hour later, around 200 to 250 young people gathered at the mall, leading to several fights near the courtyard. A gunshot was fired near Bay Street in all one way, but no injuries were reported. In a separate incident near Elm Street, a minor was stabbed and taken to the hospital with no life-threatening injuries. These incidents serve as a stark reminder of the challenges law enforcement agencies face in maintaining order during public gatherings. Authorities are continuing their investigations into both situations, emphasizing the importance of ensuring the safety of all residents. Stephanie Sikal, NTD News, Los Angeles. Coming up, Chinese property developer Evergrande takes a nosedive with shares down. The company has lost $2.2 billion, or about 80% of its market value. And in tennis news, she was ranked number one before retiring three years ago. Tonight, Carolyn Wozniacki makes her grand slam return. That and more when we return.
Welcome back. Chinese property developer Evergrande is at the center of a crisis in China's property sector. Its stock resumed for the first time in almost a year, but the price of its shares are plummeting. For more, we speak with NTD Business's Don Ma. Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Yeah, pleasure, Tiff. Don, indebted real estate developer Evergrande's stocks fell by nearly 90% on Monday. Tell us what happened here. Sure, Tiff. Um, so Evergrande resumed trading on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Um, by the way, trading on the stock was actually suspended for about 17 months since uh, March 21 of last year. Um, and here, here's the fact for you. If, if Evergrande didn't resume trading, it could have faced possible delisting from the exchange because the company whose shares have been uh, suspended for 18 months faces this possible outcome. So now the company resumed trading, right? Um, after it said it had fulfilled all the conditions by the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. But as you mentioned, its, it's shares dropped as much as 87% today. It's, it's literally becoming a penny stock. It lost $2.2 billion or almost 80% of its entire market value, Tiffany. Lots of money there. And Don, why did the stock fall by so much? Is that normal? Well, Tiff, let me just tell you, it's not normal. It, it just goes to show like how confident investors are about the company. Um, you can basically see this as a vote of confidence, but that aside, the company also is delaying crucial restructuring meetings with international creditors in Hong Kong. Uh, Evergrande delayed the meeting for a month. Uh, where creditors were, were supposed to vote on its restructuring plan. So this is also adding to uncertainty over their restructuring. But other than that, there's more, Tiff. Evergrande also reported its January-June losses, which was about $4.5 billion. Evergrande is still the most indebted Chinese property developer. And and just, just let me point out one more thing. I want to put this into perspective for our viewers of how much their shares have actually fallen. The company has lost now 99% of its market capitalization since its peak in 2017. And by the way, Tiff, resuming trading is actually very crucial. It's a crucial step for, for the company in, in its uh, process of restructuring its offshore debt. But, you know, it seems like it's not off to a good start. And Don, given real estate's importance in China's economy, there's a lot of eyes on Evergrande. Will Evergrande be able to continue its operations in the future? Well, I certainly hope so, right? Evergrande said its ability to continue will depend on a successful restructuring plan and successful negotiations with lenders on repayment extensions. But you know, I, I don't know how happy creditors are going to be when you delay your restructuring meetings, literally just hours before it was supposed to start. Evergrande needs approval from more than 75% of the holders of each debt class to actually approve the restructuring plan. Um, some analysts are actually saying that the reason for the delay is because Evergrande actually feels like they don't have enough votes and, and, you know, the fact that your shares fell 87% on the first day of resuming trading uh, probably doesn't help with getting votes. Well, lots to look out for here, Don Ma. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tiff. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with a look at the U.S. Open. 
That's right, Tiff. The last tennis major of the year kicked off earlier today with top-ranked women's player Iga Swiatek already advancing to the second round with a straight sets win this afternoon. Now, Sviatek is the defending champion here, but she could face some stiff competition against 19-year-old American Coco Gauff, among others. Gauff, who plays her first round match tonight, is ranked sixth in the world and beats Sviatek earlier this month at the Western and Southern Open in Cincinnati. The two could potentially meet in the quarterfinals. Now on the men's side, this marks the return of Novak Djokovic, who missed last year's competition because of his vaccination status. Djokovic, who also plays his first rounder this evening, is largely expected to meet world number one Carlos Alcaraz for the title two weeks from today. That would mark a rematch of last month's Wimbledon final, which Alcaraz won in a thriller. Also in play tonight will be 43-year-old Venus Williams, who's won seven major titles, including this event all the way back in 2000 and 2001. In addition, former world number one Caroline Wozniacki, who retired three years ago, is making her Grand Slam return tonight, this time with two kids in tow. And in college sports, the ACC is still reportedly discussing adding Stanford, Cal, and SMU with the decision expected this week, according to ESPN. The conference has been talking expansion ever since the Pac-12 lost the majority of their members earlier this summer. The schools would reportedly be temporarily willing to take a reduced payout, which could create an annual pool of roughly 50 to 60 million dollars that could be divided among the 15 current members. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, 14 baseball games are on, including one with the hottest team in the league, the Milwaukee Brewers, who've won eight straight games. They play at the Chicago Cubs. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, back to you. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.